0: I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. Death by DVDs. Astron 6 Extravaganza. Featuring Kung Fu. Father fucking. Excuse me? A baking powder? Italian giallo. Heart-stopping, boner-popping action. You'll laugh. (laughs) You'll cry. There'll be psychotic children and murderous aliens, the Irish, and other horrifying and hysterical things. We will look right into the abyss. And that motherfucker is going to look right back. A hot and steamy load of cock-gobblingly good content shot directly into your ear holes. And now, the hosts
1: of this show. This is Death by DVD, and you're listening to Hank, the world's greatest. I can't... Seem to light my match because of my goddamn wooden hand. Alexander Nash, could you help me light my cigarette? You're all wood, I don't see the problem. The only things more wooden than my hand, your sense of humor and my acting abilities. So, on this episode, we are talking about the Canadians. Not just Canadians, a specific group of Canadians,
2: a specific group of Canadian filmmakers that have been uh, turning out some interesting content, because that's the way we describe films now is content, and we'll be talking about a film collective known as Astron
1: 6. What did I used to call them? Didn't I used to call them Vestron 7 or something like that? I, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I I remember like the idea of it and then it's just whatever forms in my head like Vestron and you know that's a thing. Well that's actually kind of interesting
2: because they've got their name Astron because it sounded like Vestron because they wanted to evoke a 1980s like video label kind of aesthetic. But uh, Astron 6, a Film Collective, it's a group of guys who met at a film festival. that's say in the early 2000s they were all interested in film in one shape form or another, and they all decided to kind of work together and just kind of start making movies. And they started making shorts, and the shorts they were doing were all very genre-inspired. I can't think of an Astron 6 film, short film, that doesn't have some sort of reference or trying to uh, evoke some sort of imagery from the 1970s, the 1980s. That's pretty much what they specifically end up doing, and it's not in that nouveau way that most... Like, kind of, I don't
1: think it's just specifically though, like, 70s and 80s. I think they really pinpoint on certain genres. Well, it's mostly Um, just exploitation films because when modern exploitation filmmaking,
2: and I know this is a bone of contention for a lot of people right now, is so many people are trying to make John Carpenter movies. They're using the, the synth soundtrack, the one note synth soundtrack with John Carpenter. They're trying to, um, again, evoke that image of a John Carpenter film from the the 1980s, where that's all well and good. It's getting a little hackneyed at this point because just so many of them are doing it. And what Astron 6 did a little bit differently is they didn't just get obsessed with one style or one filmmaker. They kind of embodied all of those filmmakers and all of those films from that time because they use a lot of synth, and that's one of the things I will compliment all the Astron Six films on is um i'm pretty sure jeremy gillespie one of the guys from the, the collective did most of their soundtracks i don't know about the more modern stuff but definitely like a lot of the um the older stuff um and he does very 1980s inspired sense soundtracks that for some reason always remind me of the uh, surf nazis must die soundtrack and i always think that's like that's good though. That's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing cuz I love the Surf Nazis Must Die soundtrack. Um it's very synth heavy and taking it in like interesting directions and not just kind of relying on um just kind of boring like basic synth riffs and doing something really interesting with it. But um anyway, getting back into like when they were doing shorts, we'll talk a little bit about some of the ones they do and they are all of, uh, not all of them, but a good chunk of them are up on their YouTube page, which is criminally unsubscribed to.
1: It's not a very active page. I mean, they've posted in the last hey, wow. year or so. That means we have something in common with them. And and while you're on that subject, you should right now go like and subscribe to Death by DVD absolutely anywhere Smash you can. Smash that like button. Buy a t-shirt.
2: But yeah, uh, a lot of their shorts are on YouTube for YouTube for your viewing pleasure right now. But they like don't have a, a shit ton of views, which is really kind of annoying because a lot
1: of them are really interesting even when you go and you look up like um one of the movies we're going to be talking about tonight the editor it's really hard to find a majority of good reviews for Astron six movies which really leads me to believe that most of the population is just humorless and will die alone never getting it I i don't know it really is baffling people are increasingly analytical these days i guess and the value of humor is, is very misunderstood there's a lot of accusations of misogyny and I, I saw somebody refer to them as the waynes brothers um you know referring what? to some, <laughs> yeah you know how they make parody films kind of like manborg's a parody film the editor's kind yeah, of a parody not really
2: even close because no, those no, are no, bad no. jokes
1: and astron six movies they have
2: like they're not all great jokes. Some of them are kind of like ridiculous and so but they're not like all these dumb sight gags that, like the Wayans brothers use. They're not all like fucking semen
1: jokes and I just think people really... miss it. I think that's a, a big problem when it comes to the core of their work is their homages and their references are so deeply layered within the films. If you don't know what you're getting into like Manborg, for example, I think that's where we're actually going to begin. If you aren't into the certain genres that they're playing on, then obviously you're not going to enjoy what you're getting into. But if you're a fan of Italian film and you have a sense of humor and can relax, the editor's goddamn fucking great. I mean, that (laughs) movie's arguably better than some of the movies Argento's made in the last 20 years, like all of them. Oh, I would say yes, definitely. But with the shorts, like they did one called
2: Inferno of the Dead, which is somewhat based on uh, the italian horror film burial ground the zombies in it are inspired by burial ground the quote from burial ground the cult of the black spider is at the very beginning of it and the, the general premise is you know zombie invasion they break into uh, this couple's apartment and then they just stand around and the zombies are just merely annoying like watching seinfeld at a hundred percent volume in the middle of the night or um, eating all of your cereal and just being
1: like incredibly annoying, and that's that's the general joke of that one. There's one um, called a lot of these things. I think that's that's unique. If you can sit down and witness these shorts, is a lot of the gags are used later on in the movies because something what you just described—that's a scene in Psycho Goreman. That uh, so a lot of these things that you can see early on, they're they're really using and working into the potential of what is uh, Astron Six. Uh, now. That's
2: just their style of humor too. It's just um, it's all very like referential, but also very much um, in a loving tribute at the same time. It's not making fun of those films as much as it is paying tribute, as well as kind of warmly making fun of them. Um, there's one called The Day in Hell, which is basically about the uh, Joker getting tired of, I guess, getting tired of his existence, and he ODs. And Batman just freaks out because he, he doesn't want anybody to think that Because Commissioner Gordon just keeps asking him. I mean, I mean, you kind of had a big hand in this. Nah, nah, man. He, I mean, he was a criminal. And then he's like crying on the phone to Alfred. It's, it's all very humorous. But I mean, like over the years, they made several different shorts before they decided to translate that into a feature film, which I believe they started in mm, 2009. I know it took about three years for them to um, start and finish Manborg. They were already working on Father's Day. The next one we'll be discussing. When Manborg wrapped up, they would release two movies basically back to that back to back because Manborg kind of took so long in rendering and special effects to complete. Yeah, both both films came out in two thousand and eleven. And Manborg is an homage to nineteen. More specifically, I think it's a a major homage to the Eliminators, the Empire Pictures film Eliminators, because that's what you end up getting is a cyborg character with a gun arm and uh, with the glowing eye and half the face is a robot. It's also
1: a reference to like so many different sci fi films over the years. Not only that, I think a lot of action, not action based, but you know, like Tekken, Mortal Kombat, video games like that. Oh, very video game inspired. Number one, more than anything, has to be inspired from something like that. And I think a lot of What's the a attitude. Mortal Kombat character, I would say. Like Liu Kang. A lot of the attitude with how the characters move too is kind of like that arcade style back and forth that no one really moves in a linear way that you just, when you're presented with them on the screen, it's almost like you're playing an arcade game, which kind of works to the benefit of the film. But again, this is like the very first product. The big issue, and I I use the
2: word issue sparingly. I'm not trying to like poke too many holes at them, but it does have some incredibly cheap special effects in it and some of that is the point the point is to have some bad special effects but at the same time like it's I'd say about 95 to 98 percent blue screen and the backgrounds that were rendered are so utterly complex and so busy it's hard to kind of tell what's going on on a lot of the times
1: because it's just so much going on I think a lot of that though is just doing it to, to I mean it's not necessarily just doing it to pull the trigger but you're going to finish the product. You're working on something. You're working on an art piece. You're going to finish with whatever tools you have necessary. I mean, you might not have paint, but you have wood stains, so you got to make something work. You use whatever tools are, are completely necessary. So, I mean, I I get where you're coming from, but I don't think it really hinders the product. I don't think product. it's really a
2: de- uh, too much of a detriment to the film in itself. It's just, th- I mean, this is going to be incredibly nitpicky at times, too. I'm not like trying to just say, well, this movie would be great, but. No, the movie's pretty great. And what the product is. It's in itself. content.
1: I mean, we're, we're giving these people sweet, sweet content. That's all that matters. We'll be blowing Astron 6 throughout this whole thing. Trust me. I can't right now. So I got to do hand jobs because I kind of i got a throat thing. My gag reflex <laughs> is kicking in. So you do the, the blowing, I'll do the handies. But what really works in the film is its characters and its
2: attention to how the char- characters like interact with each other. Um, by far, my favorite character is um, Justice, played by Connor Sweeney, who's doing this very over-the-top,
1: Jocko-style Australian accent, and just, uh, it's the best thing about saying? the movie. Well, his entire performance is what kept me... Like, this is one of those movies that you begin sometimes and you keep finding well, reasons... Well, some shenanigans, aren't you? I kept finding reasons to pause this and to get away from it, and that character is what, every time coming back, is like, well, let's see what happens next. I mean, if he gets killed off, I'm going to stop watching this, and that drives the movie for you, because it's fucking ridiculous and none of it makes sense, because his sister doesn't have an Australian accent. He does, but I don't know. It doesn't matter. I mean, th- we're nitpicking it. I guess, but fuck.
2: Oh, we're incredibly nitpicking because none of this is to be taken too seriously. Um, And Matthew Kennedy plays Manborg, and his performance is incredibly dialed down. He's supposed to be incredibly robotic, but he has some of the...
1: Well, you got to talk about the beginning because at the beginning of the movie, Matthew Kennedy is still a human being, and what we've neglected to talk about is this is during, like, the Hell War. Um, this is during the Hell War. God damn it, that's an incredibly hard sentence to say. This is, it's really not, I'm just stupid. This is during the Hell Wars, where Count Draculon has come from Hell, and there are these weird zombie demon vampires that are fighting. They are, Where are they? They're, um, Cyber...
2: Fuck, I can't remember the exact title of the... cyber minions something like that
1: well apparently all that's left to defend the world is like some world war one style bayonets and matthew kennedy and his brother are like part of some commando strike team and he ends up fighting draculon and is the only man to ever stand up next to him before he becomes Manborg. so we get to establish some like Hercules-style fucking heroics that this character... And and the guy is, like... not like when you're looking at, like, RoboCop, at least when they put the armor on RoboCop. He looks really menacing. He looks really tough. You know, and Peter Weller's kind of a lanky, thin dude. But when Matthew Kennedy suits up as Manborg, it's kind of like when you and your friends got out the duct tape and, like, played toy guns and made fucking props in the backyard. I don't know if everybody did that. I was an imaginative kid. But it, it looks like you taped some fucking cutlery to your friend's forehead and uh, you know I like it I'm not saying it's bad but <laughs> <laughs> and the plot in itself is I mean it's
2: kind of impossible to follow because it is one of those like future science fiction films where they drop a lot of uh, technological jargon all of it's meaningless and they would tell you that it's meaningless shit but um, just fighting this hell world with Count Draculon and It's some cyber city and all the backgrounds are blue screen and none of it really makes any sense. But it is
1: like And then it becomes a gladiatorial battle that it's not just this like weird epic hellscape into the future that our lead characters, Justice, Mina, Manborg, and number one man all have to fight against these awesome claymation beasts. And it's like again, a giant blue screen, but It just, I don't know, there's so many different ideas going here, and that's where, like, the video game aspect comes into play, that now all of a sudden it's a first-person fighting sort of thing, and then it goes into this survival quest and the story of Manborg relearning his soul, and you find out all the stuff about Dr. Scorpius being, it goes fucking everywhere, It, it just goes everywhere. Well, like, Matthew Kennedy's
2: performance is really, like, one of the things that I think is great about the film is, it's, like I was saying, how dialed down it is, but he has some of the funniest lines, because... He barely has any lines. The ones he says are like, you know, two or three words long. But that's what's funny about it because he's like, uh, when Doctor Scorpius is like telling him all this exposition, expo- expo- expositional. Dude, words dialogue, are so hard.
1: I, I, it's it's a difficult night for us.
2: Apparently so. Um, his responses are just like,
1: yeah, well. And just, I don't know, it's just very funny. I mean, in the that's kind of involved. like a whole Terminator thing, I feel, for me, of, uh, well, not so much Terminator, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, where you've got that whole unique sequence where John Connor's teaching him all these hip and neat lingo catchphrases from the early 1990s, and it's just kind of fucking lethargic, and Schwarzenegger's writing it in.
2: And that's what's kind of funny about it, because I think that's kind of one of the things that they're referencing, is at this point in one of these films, you'd have somewhat of a one-liner, but there is no one-liner yeah. It's just a very base response that like he would say, as opposed to like saying something clever. He says the most unclever thing possible. And that's the joke, and that's why it's funny. And it goes so many random, weird fucking places, like going out into the wasteland on like hover bikes. <laughs> How do those things hover, man? Uh, oh, that's it's hover technology. Shut your mouth. But it's really hard to do this justice to talk about it because you're going to find yourself sitting there trying to explain why jokes are funny, And what the plot is, which the plot is fucking a meandering mess
1: of sci-fi bullshit. (laughs) But it's an interesting film what it is. I mean, that's really the difficult thing when it comes to trying to discuss a movie like this. Because there really isn't, I mean, there's tons of stuff to talk about. But if we were like a video game show and we could cross-reference and we could bring up all these things, it would be different. Like, I I brought it up earlier. When we get to the editor, it's going to be like two kids... You know, unsupervised at a Chuck E. Cheese. We're going to be excited and talking about, talking over each other and rambling because it's it's super exciting and fun. And that's something that's really unique itself about Astron 6 is with all of their films, they've managed to capture a certain genre, a certain feeling, a certain certain fandom. Yeah. And they, they really encapsulate absolutely everything available. And there are just. So many references that if you're, you know, like an anime fan, a video game fan, Manborg really might be the type of humor that will just keep you up laughing all night and really give you a great time. I don't have any problem with it. I I laughed at the movie throughout times and places. My problem was just connecting to it that I, I, you know, I was never a video game person. I don't know anything about All the jokes in the movie. To me, it got annoying just because it's not my style of film. And this is something Nash and I even argue about. Even shit like Universal... Well, Universal Soldier is such a bad reference. I always have the dumbest goddamn references... What's the one with Jean-Claude Van Damme? That, that fucking... Universal Soldier? Really? Oh, well, never mind. Then I'm going to stick with that weird. <laughs> Time really is a flat circle. I just don't like fucking action movies like that. They don't do anything for me, no matter how tacky and cheap they are. Well, again,
2: what is interesting in the film is the, uh, the level of humor, how it's delivered, and some of the jokes that are non-jokes. And... To sit here and try to explain why that's funny or why that's interesting is just a ridiculous notion. But just to say that Manborg, I would I, and Hank would probably agree with me for the most part that Manborg is probably one of their weakest films. I mean, it's it the first one. First film. So I mean, I, you got to
1: give them credit for that.
2: But Manborg was just kind of an entry point into making feature-length films, and like I said, it's it took them years to complete just because of how extensive a lot of the special effects were. Uh, but it did pave the way for them to make their next film, which is Father's Day, which Troma Team did release. You could call it an official Troma film because they do reference Troma in it a lot. Like, it takes place in Tromaville. But also, I think, and this is all hearsay, this is all I might have heard the story at some point, and I'm mixing something up. I'm pretty sure this started as a film trailer that was entered into like one of those grindhouse trailer contests, sort of like Hobo with a Shotgun and then they got money to actually make the the film, the trailer into a feature-length movie, and then Troma released it. And goddamn, is this thing objectionable in so many places. It is so entirely... I'm pretty sure Lloyd Coffin at one point said this is one of the roughest
1: movies that Troma has ever released because of some of the subject matter in it. The film begins with a man fucking a detached corpse's head. So, you know, he's fucking a head. And then he eats a penis.
0: Oh, God, it's so good. Mm. Mm, so good. Mm. So good and tasty. Mm. Mm. Mm.
1: And boy, do I got to tell you, it's a really realistic penis, if anything. Astron 6 has excellency in crafting male genitalia, and that's like... I think really some of the least shocking stuff, I mean, you get into even just some of the dialogue is so fucking questionable in this movie. We were talking about Rudy Ray more recently and just absolute rated X material. The dialogue, the script for this movie, I I could just see completely offending and turning people blind. But when you watch the product, and I have to warn you, I guess... If you have an incredibly crude sense of humor and some nihilistic passions in your life, this is one of the funniest fucking things I've seen in years. I mean, you can sit and watch, like, the pumped-out-of-its-ass Adam Sandler garbage Netflix deals, or you could watch Father's Day, and, and this is dick-eatingly good. It it was just fucking—
2: <laughs> Mama mia! prepared to be offended at some point because they— have- offend all comers in this one um
1: nothing really offended me there were points of the movie where it was like oh okay wow
2: but yeah some of the language choices um at times they drop a couple of f slurs in it um uh, for comedic effect that sort of thing the general plot is a character known as chris fuckman um is a father killer he uh is a homicidal slasher that tracks down and kills father he's a father fucker that's his big well he, thing. Fu- he well he fucks and kills them so he's and killing he the cocks and he's fucking and killing a lot of elderly men and then eating their dicks so if that plot interests you at all enjoy father's day but it's all it's mostly about a band of people getting together a priest uh a man who spent his life searching for the fuck man um, who killed his father and put him in an orphanage and a character named twink played by connor sweeney whose pimp was killed by the fuck man his pimp walnut (laughs) <laughs> that cracks me
1: up. His name is Walnut. I don't know why. This movie is where Connor Sweeney becomes easily my favorite member of Astron 6, and uh, he's he's not the funniest. That's definitely... That's Adam Brooks. Brooks. But Connor Sweeney is the most sellable motherfucker on the planet. If he was on Cheerios, I'd buy them. I, I, there's something about his fucking bleach blonde eyebrows that's just amazing. And even discussing him as a character, it's not just something that appears in Manborg. He just is bleached everywhere. I, I assume asshole, nipples, the whole nine yards. But just this weird, blonde, effeminate character. And then Adam Brooks has got an eye patch on one eye, and he's named Ahab. He's fucking looking for his white whale sort of situation. And then Matthew Kennedy is the very questionable priest. They eventually have to like get to hell. To, to fight this demon and <laughs> that's where the thing takes a whole turn
2: because it, it it's the, it's the quest movie it's like kind of like a cop movie well I mean cop movies uh, over exaggeration but you know like it's three guys searching for this this homicidal character
1: I mean because pretty much you've got Adam Brooks would be Mel Gibson um let's see Connor would be Danny Glover and then Matthew Kennedy in this situation would be Joe pesci so I mean I get what you're saying I think
2: you got the the the, uh, the roles reverse. Let's say Kennedy would be fucking Danny Glover, and then you got old Twink old Joe Pesci twink in the back seat <laughs>
1: I don't know <laughs> I like how I said it but it's still all funny it's, but, <laughs> it's yeah, I still mean, all funny they're, they're
2: going after the fuck man to like you know get the revenge and stop all of his father fucking and well killing. we find out I and- mean
1: this is where it just gets it's not even so much convoluted but we go through like I don't know what I'd say more than half of the movie with the fuck man as a real person until we find out that the fuck man is actually a demon that is invoked through a cult of, of the what are they the fuck minions yeah the fuck minions which this is all appeals so heavily to my interests. I'm not gonna lie to you or <laughs> any. I, I'm fucking rolling as I'm watching this movie. I thought it was perfect. Well, which then you, that's they actually go to hell. Sets
2: up the funniest part to me is like about an hour into the film, they catch up to the fuckmen, and basically brooks just demolishes him and shoots him in the back and then like stomps his fucking head and throws him off
1: a fucking bridge
2: (laughs) (laughs) throws him off a bridge and is just so happy he's like man that felt fucking great oh i'm sorry you didn't get any of that did you want some of that i'm sorry i just i just kind of lost it for a minute and they've killed the the main baddie and then a whole supernatural subplot comes in that involves Brooks having to fuck his own sister to bring apart the demon fuck-a-man. Um, Lloyd Kaufman playing God, them killing themselves so they can go to hell and save his
1: sister. Just lots of crazy shit. You know, I feel when you bring up sister fucking in general, it makes most people cringe. But there's no real way to say it and give this movie credit for the attitude that it took toward incest. Because it wasn't like, I'm going to make a little bit of an incest joke here one of the most awkward it's like fuck five scenes. five solid
2: minutes of fucking... <laughs> there had
1: to be some actual penetration going on. Like, they're, they're, it's so fucking realistic. It's like a Jamie Gillis movie. For a good five minutes, uh, there had to be some sort of chafing and uh, rubbing or something going on. And it's fucking horrifying. If anything scares you in this movie, it is the attitude that these people decided to take towards sister fucking, because it's so... It's it doesn't just go away either. Like the the last half of the movie kind of revolves on the fact that Ahab fucked his sister. Like, that, well, really, I was that's right. Like...
2: no, yes, yes, I was blackout drunk. That's you know, what we happened. we
1: may or may not have the other night like fooled around a little bit. Don't forget to get an abortion. Well, you know, it's kind of goofy back and forth, especially when you're listening to this show that you and I are just quoting the movie. But I think that is a sentiment and something you know, especially as a listener, if you aren't familiar with. Bob Father's Day or don't know Astron Six that well, and this is all new to you, the fact that we're able to laugh this much after the fact, quoting the movie and having fun with it just because it's that much fun. It's it's incredibly crude, it's lewd, it's offensive, it's blue, all those fucking buzzwords that you could throw at it. But, but again, it's, what makes
2: it's it's it funny is
1: not just like
2: written for anyone else and performed by anybody else, I don't think it would work as well. It's how they deliver the jokes is what really works. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like everybody's involved, for the most part, in the writing, the producing, the like the directing, and a little little spouts, the camera work. Um, so they all have their hands in it, the the main five guys. So they cater their own performances to what they like, you know, have written for themselves for the most part because they know what how to deliver their own lines that they basically wrote for themselves. Just getting to the the brass tacks of the movie, it's kind of really impressive, because I think it was a $10,000 budget overall. Wow. Uh,
1: yeah. You know, this really... And it it's fucking goofy. It goes all over the place. But, I mean, jokes aside, literally, the, the fake dicks alone, $10,000, that's out of this world that these guys can use that money to get so much done. Well, just down to even the lighting, the, uh, the, the camera work, and how, like, well-lit
2: the film is, because it's not just generic throw-up, a uh, super bright 10K light. It is use gels you use a lot of filters i mean it was shot on like high def video and then rendered down to look like it was a kind of grindhouse with, you know,
1: After Effects and stuff like that, but it looks like
2: it was shot on film. It does not look like video.
1: Well, even that aside, this film looks like an Italian film. It looks like a mid... I mean, the lighting, there's heavy uses of red and blues and neons and the way, you know, uh, somebody will be killed and a character will stop and scream and then be cast in this heavy red glow. It's shot like a fucking 80s giallo. There's a lot of science behind... I mean, even going back to Manborg... Most of it is uh, green screen, but there still is a lot of that's fucking a lot of technical work in itself that they were able to go from that into this. But 90 percent of a movie being even shitty digital, it's still impressive getting that fucking rendered and, and working on it.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is no way that unless, you know, somebody who's working super cheap and making VOD movies for Tubi, that could do like, I don't think anybody could turn out this product for ten thousand dollars. Like, any of those people who are doing the, those Tubi things, they still need a budget of, like, I'd say fifty to $60,000, and it doesn't look half as good as this movie does.
1: I don't even think Fred Olin Ray works for $10,000 anymore.
2: But it, it that kind of shows a commitment to the product, because this is love of film and love of what you're making and wanting to do something interesting and different and something that actually... Is inspiring to you, and what you want to do, and what you want to put out there, and really putting forth effort into that. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of more, because so many people look at movies as stepping stones onto something else. Uh, I'm going to make a quick horror film so I can sell it, and maybe get noticed, and maybe I'll get a Netflix show, or and they'll just—they're not interested in what they're doing; they're just doing it to make money. And this reeks of people who have their hands in every aspect of it and wanting to make the best possible, the funniest product that they can. And I think it's kind of an amazing achievement for for the $10,000 they put into it to make a narrative film that is hilarious and at
1: times incredibly disturbing. I think a lot of that comes down to the people that are involved in in Astron Six and who make up this collective, that all of them are artists that take their art seriously. They're making products for themselves, essentially. I mean, there's an audience for these sort of things, but these guys are believing in themselves. They're following through with a project that they've written, they've produced, that they have acted in, they have come up with absolutely everything for. And that, essentially, is is really the pure, uh, the purest, the purity of art, is being able to do something... For yourself without having a regard or worry about the audience, knowing that it will be judged, knowing that it will be seen, but following through and doing it simply for the passion and joy and the love of achieving and creating that art. And there's something uh, to me incredibly beautiful about a movie about a cock-eating father-fucking-murderer that it's just, God, they finished this? This movie makes me want to get out of bed at the end of the day because, shit, they finished this. I want to work for these guys. I would love to do things like this all it's day long. It's the commitment
2: to the, what they're doing. And that, that's what's so impressive about just how committed they are to turning this out. And special – uh, like, because, um, like, the lighting, the music, and performances, again, it's what their strong suits are. The stories in most of their films are somewhat of a muddled, like, mess – but that's not a problem because it's not about that. That is just a medium to transfer over these, these gags and these jokes that they have. It's not so much about like telling the best story possible. It's about like, I've got a good joke for this. I've got a good scene here. That's really funny. Or I got, you know, something along those lines as opposed to just trying to like, no, no, no. The story is what's most important here. It's about a, fucking father fucking
1: slasher turns into a demon. I mean even following through with what you just brought up about, you know, being able to deliver certain things and certain things being funny, you'll never see suicide portrayed so hysterically as Father's Day. <laughs> like 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 bitter fucking shooting yourself in the face suicide. One of the funniest scenes in the fucking movie, just one of them gets tired of the other two arguing over who goes first and shoots themselves because they have to commit suicide to get to hell to fight this demon. Uh, there, and it's not even, like, spoilers. Nothing could spoil this movie. There's absolutely nothing. We could go through the plot in linear form and tell you everything that happens, and still, it's not going to fucking shock or, or take anything away from from the, the actual experience. Yeah, again, because
2: the plot is, like, one of the least important things in the film. It's so much more about just watching these people work and watching them deliver these great, fucking hysterical performances. Um, like, Father's Day, it's... Not one of my favorites again. I mean, out of all the films, I guess technically they only made three films, so I'd say it's number two
1: <laughs> out of the three films. I, I guess I'm I'm not gonna like try and rate anything here. I mean, the editor out of what is Astron Six is my favorite movie hands down, but Father's Day was just hysterical, and and getting me to laugh out loud is a feat. Like I don't, I I find plenty of things funny, but that doesn't mean I'm going to laugh at it. And I, I can say for every single film every film even uh, associated with Astron 6 even the void i i laugh there's something fucking naturally funny about the per- uh, there's something naturally funny about the performances but what you have to give credit to is the fact that the writers the directors and the actors are put into place so well and there's such a tight puzzle that these things are naturally funny because natural humor is almost <laughs> unnatural at this point it's almost fucking impossible i mean like not even trying to assault the show but like saturday night live is not funny and it hasn't been for a really really long time i don't even think like will ferrell tina fey that era never really did anything for me having just the right pieces at the right time and having everything firing uh just absolutely perfectly and fast that's what you've got with astron 6 and i think that's what really makes it it's so connective is it's fucking natural Everyone is in their own element, and everything works so well in those elements that you kind of get past the point that you're watching a movie about a cock-eating father-fucking murderer. It's <laughs> it's just funny. It's like a really weird Kids in the Hall, but Isabella Rossellini doesn't have glass legs because that's what happens if the guy from Kids in the Hall makes movies. That and sister-fucking. Yeah, well, a lot of it, man. <laughs> we'll get into that
2: at some other show. And what makes it also great is they understand the the genres that they are um, sending up and there's an intense love for those genres it's also uh, noting the absurdity of those genres and they're able to boil those concepts down into really good humor as opposed to kind of like flailing like all over the place just trying to get a laugh here and laugh here and laugh here it's like no no no, no. What's funny about this is this specific thing. That's what was funny about this in, say, Weird Science or some movie like that. That one thing is what's hilarious. So let's take that and where can we run with that idea. And we'll get a little bit more into this in the next film we're doing, which is a movie they did in 2014 called The Editor, which is a send-up slash homage slash parody of Italian giallo films. And holy shit, let me just start off and say... The editor is a fucking masterpiece of a movie.
1: It is. It's a five-star movie to me. I think it's a bit of a misnomer saying that it's specifically just giallo films. That I think this is... There's
2: a t- all Italian-like
1: films. I mean, I truly think depicting a certain era that this is Italian horror from 1972 to around 1988, 1987 or so. Because, I mean, specifically most of the homages and sequences that you're going to see are Lucio Fulci and Dario Argento-based but this is where the layers get incredibly complicated. These guys are fucking devout. The, these guys know. These guys are like fucking Stephen Thrower and Kim Newman and, and Stephen Bissett. These guys know goddamn everything there is to know. And when you watch this movie for the first time, it's like, oh yeah, I've seen an Italian movie before. Ha ha ha, tarantulas. Somebody's eyes turn white. I get it. Watch it again. This is one of those movies that has so many layers that it's like... There's so many specific references to, like, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery. I've seen it, like, seven times Pins now, way. and I'm still picking up different things every time I watch it, that it, it truly is an experience for somebody that really, really passionately loves Italian horror. But but really, like, 1972 to, like, 1986, that might be a, a, a better assessment. And the way it's shot is... Fucking amazing
2: because it is shot exactly like a, a Italian horror film, specifically more giallo, like as like more along the Suspiria lines of heavy saturated colors, but at times also kind of the banality of how Italian films are shot. The characters are perfect to Italian horror of that era. Not only that, you know what? Like the one thing I would criticize, and I wouldn't even call this a criticism, but something that could have improved the movie because almost all the characters are dubbed. That's fucking hilarious. First of all, that they went to the trouble of dubbing everybody, even with their own voices. But also, like, if they could have gotten a hold of Nick Alexander and gotten those classic 1980s Italian voices that you hear in like 90% of those films to dub them, that would have made everything so much better. But yeah, OK, within the realms of possibility. They did get Claudio Simonetti, though, to do
1: the uh, do the theme song. So there's that. Simonetti and Udo Kier. Also, if you take note, Lustmord participates in the soundtrack. So that's something interesting if you're into weird industrial music and trance ambient and stuff like that. But I really agree, like, being able to get, like, Catriona McCall or or somebody else. I mean, David Warbeck's dead. You could have gotten the dumbest man in the world. He's living in Bali running a hotel. That really would have been, like, the cherry on top of everything. That's kind of a retrospective thought that every time I've watched this movie... And I've seen it multiple times, always out of pleasure. I, I I have zero fault with it. I think there are are places where and this happens with every movie, it drags, but I think it intentionally drags to play off of truly the the genre that it's knocking. And this is the one I think that is almost infamously poorly reviewed. And I challenge the audience, go to Amazon.com and look up the editor 2014. And just scroll through and read the reviews that Amazon customers have left. So most of these people have, you know, bought a movie and it shows up. Well, get this, 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 and this for a certain price and you buy it. And all of these people are just absolutely shocked. You know, I bought the bird with the crystal plumage and I sat down and I watched the editor and I just don't get it. I mean, I get it. It's like one of those Wayne's Brothers movies. You know, it's a parody, but they just got it all wrong. The editor is is better, shot better, and looks better than almost 90% of every movie that has come out in the last, like, five years, yet alone Dario Argento's career from, like, 1992 to now. That's kind of weird. So you can knock it, and you can have an issue with it being a parody movie, but you can't actually look at it and give it the credit of how fucking gorgeous this movie is. it's a parody
2: movie at the same time as being one of those films. It doesn't skimp on the idea of being a giallo film... It's same a time better Giallo movie
1: than like half of the ones Vinegar Syndrome is putting out on the Forgotten Giallo box sets. Like it's fucking a pretty good movie if you follow it aside from the comedic aspects and all the little triggers. And the attention that they have. to detail within the characters um into characters in
2: general, such as the uh, uh one of my favorite characters is Matthew Kennedy playing the police detective who um he he slaps women around. What's the line, Hank? Because you do this one better than me.
1: There's a sequence where he's been tailing our lead character, Ray Ciso, played by Adam Brooks, and Ray's wife is a former Giallo actress, and she's uh, just a drunk. She's got a huge problem with him, and she's yelling at him during dinner. The cop that's tailing him, Matthew Kennedy's Peter Porphyry, he pops out, smacks her twice, and he turns to Ray so and says something to the effects of like, you know what, I've been tailing you for hours and this, I, you're, you're absolutely pathetic. You gotta keep your wife in line and you know what, if you don't, I'm gonna smack you next. Huh, imagine that. Another man slapping a man. That's the whole point, because if you looked at any of those
2: Italian films from the, like the eighties and the seventies, so much of it is like entranced in fucking misogyny. Like all the men end up slapping women in them. It's it's a reference to those
1: things. And two, that's where some of the unique aspects of Dario Argento's films, especially in the nineteen seventies, came forward because he constantly would use, uh, how would you say it, a sort of foppish, effeminate male lead. You know, I'm not saying that they were gay, but you know, like David Hemmings' character in Deep Red. They couldn't get the job done, and finally, when the woman steps in to do it, what happens to Daria Nicolodi? She fucking gets killed. So it really plays on even the outside misogyny of when there is a strong female lead. They just fucking—they're either crazy or they're going to get killed. And in the editor, you've got all of that. (laughs) Everything. Like the cop character, every sex scene he has,
2: super, like, aggressive— super like weird and misogynistic and like the music playing in the background. It's just, it's so deep into Italian cinema that just every little scene will like just remind you of something you've seen from an Argento film, a Fulci film, a a, um, Margariti film, like all of them, they're all just combined in this wonderful pastiche of
1: just different ideas and references. The dog pulling out the hand, a reference to the New York Ripper, You've even got something like with the characters, actual representations of real people like you just brought up Margariti. That's pretty much who the director of of the movie that's being filmed inside of this movie is uh, like the lead. One of the lead actors, Cal Cal. I can't remember the last name. It's, it's Connets. It's something American. Um, the, one of the lead characters, Cal, that's Connor Sweeney. There's a lot of like weird homosexual subtext jokes, which I guess some people could be offended. Well, not I guess some people definitely could be offended by, and none of it is meant in in poor nature at all. But like one of my favorite scenes when the actor gets replaced, uh, and they're in the shower, and and Cal just kind of looks at him and is like, "Wow, you've got an excellent penis." You know what? Today's shaping up to be a great day, and then just scampers off naked down a hallway. But
2: again, just the way you like delivered that line it doesn't like okay how's that funny it's the way he delivers the line that makes <laughs> yeah. it fucking hilarious it's like the like kind of the like the weird lost look in his face and the smile he gives he's just playing this incredibly stupid character But he's like kind of wholesome all at the same time. Even in
1: that same scene, he says something to the guy. And, you know, like we're talking about all of this without any context, which if you've not seen the editor, I can understand would be incredibly hard. And you you wouldn't want to keep listening to to what we're doing. But, you know, you've got this hodgepodge of, of what really actually would have happened on like an Italian set. And so an actor gets replaced, taking this long story and making it short. An English-speaking actor gets replaced with an actor that only speaks Italian, and his counterpart only speaks English. And these two people have to work back and forth with each other, and one of them is Connor Sweeney. So, it's just, I mean, exactly compounding on what you're saying, it's the pure delivery of what's going on. But out of context, even just thinking of this movie as, like, we were discussing it as almost a pure Giallo film. The humor aspect is, I mean, I don't know what to compare it to, because I think this is one of the funniest movies you could actually sit down and see. But you kind
2: of have to, like, not always, you can appreciate some of the humor without having intense knowledge, but having the intense knowledge of Italian horror cinema of the era just makes everything so much fucking funnier. So, like, just understanding all these tiny, tiny little references. But we haven't even fucking, like, brought up what actually happens and what the
1: editor is about, which...
2: People are dying on a film set, and everybody suspects the editor who has
1: wooden fingers because he accidentally chopped them off. There, now my joke at the beginning of the show fucking makes sense. Like,
2: one of my favorite jokes in the film is when um, Connor's driving away from the, the detective and... And he he just says, seen a lot of darkness and you've come back to tell the tale. What does that mean? Huh, I don't really know. That is the very much a line from an Italian horror film. Just there's like something that's trying to sound very poetic, but at the end of the day, it makes no goddamn sense. It makes no like sense to the film in itself. It sounds like Fulci dialogue, and that's what the movie is just full of is all of the shit that if you've taken it in over the years of watching these films and kind of obsessing over these films is it is one of those films. Sure, it might have humor. It might be, have been made like, you know, 10 years ago, but it's a 1980s Italian horror film and it's perfect for like all the reasons that those films are perfect. Except for the Nick Alexander dubbing. It needed
1: that. You know, I don't want to get too deep and talk too much about the editor because, surprise, this is something that most certainly will be a full-length episode of Death by DVD in the upcoming future. I mean, we we will pay a lot of attention to this and get a lot deeper into it. But One of my most fucking hysterical sequences, it's the same scene where— the same nice penis scene that Cal says to the Italian actor Arturo, You know what? you're almost like a real bona fide American human citizen. <laughs> There's just something about the attitude that was taken in the direction of the movie that a- aside from being a really big fan and knowing a lot about uh, Italian cinema in general, it's a knowing about the time period and it's knowing about how people actually acted and how people would have been because what makes this movie so great is it's really kind of like watching a behind-the-scenes of a Giallo being made from this editor's standpoint. And he's in the studio he's working he's experiencing the actors he's with these vapid people he experiences this very harsh and cruel director all the while there's you know he's got this love plot going on and just these very very italian horror key points that are happening but you kind of get mesmerized by to me personally the idea of of how these sets how these movies were made and I don't think this is the most accurate portrayal and, and depiction of how Italian movies were made in the 1970s and 80s. But what gives it that unique kind of flair is like, yeah, it's probably well, not it that off. It is
2: a representation of how they would make a movie about making those movies in the 70s, in the 70s and 80s. If an Italian made a movie about making a Giallo movie at that era it would be exactly like this. Yeah,
1: it, it's it's beyond meta at this point. Like, it's a parody of a parody being a parody of a parody. So, I mean, it, it goes everywhere you would want it to, and it baffles me that fans of, you know, pure Italian cinema can't have some sort of enjoyment. I would love to see this on, on The Last Drive-In. This is a fucking Joe Bob movie. It would be great to have him and uh, Darcy feature this. Hey, everybody out there listening to Death by DVD, all two of you, Start a petition. Get this on Joe Bob's Last Drive In. And now, a quick commercial break with a word from one of our sponsors.
0: Anki Hank's Legend Tab Jerky. The self sustaining treat for you and me to eat. Ranch. Bacon. Jalapeno. Iguana. We got all the exotic flavors. Cranch. That's ketchup and ranch. Unky Hank's Lizard tail Jerky. Find out how you can start a new career in the Lizard Ted Jerky business. Call one 772 7337 and have a hundred American dollars ready. After 10 easy cash payments, we'll teach you how to start your new life in the lizard-tail-jerky business. It's lizard licking good! Ain't no lizards even harmed. Just listen to them! Oh god! Oh, they're attacking me! The, 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 ah, ah. Ah. That's the sound of some happy lizards. The secret here at Onky Hank's Lizard Tail Jerky is that we feed the lizards their own tails. That's right, it's self sustaining. Lizards eat lizard tail just makes it even tastier for you! No lizards were harmed in the forming of this, definitely not well. Okay, maybe possibly a little pyramid scheme. Actually, it's more of a diamond, you see. Not so much pyramid, you start the fountains. Oh. I'll buy a t-shirt. <laughs>
2: Go a little bit into the making of this film. What a fucking disaster. <laughs> it ended up costing way more than they thought it was going to cost. They shot about 20% of it and ran out of money because they had like a full crew and the crew didn't know like how to move fast, shoot fast. So they pretty much fired everybody and then it took them a year to complete because it was just like three or four people on set. The actors whatever actors they needed and the, the main leads shooting and directing and writing and doing everything. So they just chopped up everything that makes a movie expensive and just decided to do it like the old school short days and just do it themselves. Uh, special, uh, special note though. Does not Adam Brooks do just the most amazing Franco Nero inspired character?
1: Because that's basically who he's playing. He's playing Franco Nero in the movie. It's beautiful. Same hair, same stature. It, it's pretty stunning. Same stash. You could give Astron 6 some credentials as something like they're very similar to Monty Python. There is, a, I mean, you could, like, I made that SNL reference earlier, and you have something like Kids in the Hall, but there is something so genuinely natural and funny about all of these people together and their delivery that it really is reminiscent of something like Monty Python. But I think even for the audience, something to take note is. How much joy we're having doing this. Like, this whole episode has us been quoting and laughing and talking about our favorite scenes of the movie. Sure, we nitpick and we've gotten analytical here and there. But genuinely, like, we're, we're both pretty fucking grumpy people. We don't always have the the greatest opinions to, to call out there. There's a lot of doom and gloom and politics on Death by DVD. And what you have on this episode is is genuine fucking enjoyment. Like, and that's something I think that's rare even in horror criticism, horror journalism, whatever the fuck you want to call it. You don't often get... Pe- people talk about how they like something, and that's fine. But you don't often get people genuinely, like, just kind of laughing and having to stop because we're laughing so much. It's it's That's what Astron 6 really has to offer. And to me, if there's any selling point to make you go out and, and, and watch their movies and to experience their art, it's just listening to fucking people enjoy it and... I mean, that's, that's, I guess, what we have to offer for this episode is, is really, I enjoy this, not just because I'm an Italian horror fan, it's because it's fucking good, it's quality, it's well written, it's well delivered, it's, 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 was well, it's, it's,
2: it's a real joy to have a movie made specifically for you, and the editor is made for us, it's made for our level of fan, and that's why we're so into it, and then like a lot of the Astron 6 stuff, it's basically us making movies and people like us making movies and just really getting off to film in general, knowing these references, knowing, um, what's funny about these things, finding the humor in those things. And like really grouping up as, as the mutant fam, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, and just enjoying cinema and for what it is. And also knowing kind of like how the cartoon metalocalypse, the way I always described it was it is for people who love metal but simultaneously know how fucking stupid heavy metal is. And it's the same thing with uh, Astron 6 movies. For people who love these films but also, in the same token, know how really dumb they can be and how bad they can be at times, but also appreciating them for those things as well. Taking joy in the fact that this is Really, a dumb
1: scene, but it's also like really fun. It makes me love this style of film. For this, something that you can commit to that statement is the fact that they may have fun with their work, but they take it very, very seriously. And the editor is something that you can see. This was an act of love. This is an act of precision. It's shot well. It's edited well. The acting. It's beautifully be- shot. I mean, it is goddamn gorgeous. Well, the acting I think has to be given a, a really a heavy amount of note because. The acting is so bad, but it's intentional bad acting to be like an Italian film, which God, that has to take a massive amount of effort to just act like you're being fucking Franco Nero in a 70s movie. <laughs> I mean, you look at the detail and, and just even the mechanics to the characters and how they move and like the slaps and some of the fight scenes where they're completely missing each other. And the, the laughing. That's the one that I always point out is how all the laughing is
2: disingenuous. um, Like, fake dub laughing, like in Italian horror films. (laughs) It's incredible (laughs) uh,
1: choreography and continuity for absolutely everything involved in this movie. So the artistry behind it itself, aside from being a a wonderful parody, an homage, and a love letter to Italian cinema in general, Italian horror cinema, rather, in general, it's fucking excellently executed. There can be no arguments held against how great these people as artists actually are, everyone involved. I mean, I know you have to really, really give credit and hand toward the directors when it comes to this. I mean, you've got Matthew Kennedy and Adam Brooks, 100%. This is their baby, and it's a beautiful baby, mamma mia.
2: If you're a horror fan, and you don't like this film, you don't see the humor in this movie, and you just think it's kind of like, ah, eh, I get it, but it's just, I, it's not enjoyable. Eh, fuck you. Fuck you, because you don't seem like a real horror fan to me. You don't seem like you're really into this kind of stuff. You don't really understand what makes these movies great, and you're coming at it from a whole completely wrong direction.
1: And that's what I said at the beginning of the show. People that can't appreciate something like the editor, uh, you'll probably die alone missing everything and never actually laughing once in your entire life. You are the butt of the joke. I know that's cruel, but it's true, and you have to face it. You're probably your mother's least favorite child. So, um, the editor—I mean, it's it's fucking fantastic. It, out of Astron Six, out of the movies they have made under the title Astron Six, this is the best. This is fucking phenomenal. And I, I don't know. I don't. I. You can compare. I mean, I don't want to put this like, oh, let's let's compare this to a movie like Us. No. But I still would find a way to come out with the editor being on top that's that's <laughs> how much i like this movie
2: well again it's it's a movie designed to like give you a hand job and that's like it's hard to like be critical of it because it is just blowing you so much you're just like oh my god this is everything i love and it's so much in
1: my comfort zone but it's like a 70s hand job and they're wearing a velour glove and there's some awesome music playing in the background claudio simonetti's there it's fucking amazing like it, it's not just a hand job cuz that doesn't sound like that's fine getting jerked off is great but the editor fucks you you know, and it's not like Father's Day. It doesn't butt fuck you. It like sensually lays you down, and it fucks you, and it's it's. And then rubs muddle over your face. And cake sometimes. <laughs> the editor, yeah, we we like it. I think. I think like it gives us some of the most praise we've had in a really
2: long time on this show. Like this is literally. I will say it for the third time. It's a fucking masterpiece. It is a five star yeah. movie.
1: The editor in the Rudy Ray Moore show is the like most positive we have been <laughs> in like a decade. Months. Yeah, well, God, yeah, months, decades, years. Time doesn't matter. It's a flat circle, which I guess uh, in our line of continuity, if we're, we're not necessarily – we didn't bring this up at the beginning of the show, but some of the films that we're going to be discussing – are Astron 6 involved, but aren't under the umbrella of Astron 6. And I believe if linearly we're getting into the next film, it is a movie about uh, time, death, and all the constraints and pain and suffering within. But, not before we play another hot buttered round of Keith David, or David Keith. In the kick-ass 1989
0: classic, Roadhouse. What actor originally had a large role in the film that was ultimately cut for time and only appears as a background bartending extra? Is it Keith David or David Keith? It's Keith David! Thanks for playing another karate chopping round of David Keith or Keith David. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Death by DVD.
2: I'm going to just make a bold assumption here and I'm going to say that the editor probably took a lot out of Astron 6 and continuing to do the kind of films that they were doing and at least for this next film The Void um, was directed by Jeremy Gillespie and Steve cannot pronounce his last name Kostansky (laughs) Kostansky go ahead again Hank Kostansky Kostansky I cannot pronounce his name We've talked about this uh, movie before. I don't know if on this iteration of the show, but we've definitely had a full show about The Void before. We have
1: done some old episodes over again on Death by DVD from the old live era. The Void will will certainly, just like the editor, be uh, an absolute full episode of Death by DVD. But if there's anything I'm proud of on this goddamn show, it's what I titled our original Void episode. And I think it really does encompass what this movie is about. And the original episode... You know, I really—it was one of—it wasn't one of our last, but one of the last few seasons of the live era, maybe 2017, 2018. It was called. It's like one of Friedrich Nietzsche's wet dreams. That's the void. It's fucking perfect. I mean, we just said the editor is a masterpiece. This is an Astron Six. Guess what? Two masterpieces in one fucking show. Well, it's a lot of the same people involved.
2: It might not be everybody in the same capacity, but they at least show up in like a, a small role, like Matthew Kennedy shows up in a small role. They might um, have helped along the way. It's just not under that same banner. They've kind of split off and are kind of doing some separate things. And Steve, last name. Kostansky. Kostansky. I cannot pronounce it for shit. Um, he went on to, after this film, doing this film, and after this film... Being the most prolific out of continuing to make films and direct movies. The other guys, like, I know Adam Brooks is a painter. Uh, he's a really good fucking painter, too. Jealous. And they all do kind of their own things at times. They, you know, they have day jobs, but Kostansky. You got it. All right. Um, he's gone on to like work in special effects and directing films. Like, we'll just go ahead and say the other films we'll be discussing after The Void will be uh, a little bit about his. Second film after this, which was Leprechaun Returns. And after that is um, the most recent film that they've worked on, which is Psycho Goreman. The Void, it's a pretty perfect goddamn movie. Uh, it's one of the best horror films in the last 10 years, I would say. And most of it's down to mood, knowing when to let things get crazy, when to not explain things, when to let things get goopy, when to let things just happen, and just knowing how to... ...put a real creepy aura around a horror
1: film... ...even if you don't know 100% what's going on... ...it doesn't matter. So pretty much what you're saying is... ...The Void is the Kenny Rogers of horror films... ...it knows when to hold them... ...it knows when to fold them... ...it knows when to walk away... ...that really is the most accurate way... ...that we can even begin the discussion of this movie... ...because going into this saying... ...it's perfect, it's a masterpiece... ...of course that's going to raise some fucking dicks for people... ...and really want to know what this is all about... ...it doesn't really matter... The execution and the delivery of The Void is what matters more so than anything else. And uh, sure, the story is something that's really, really important, but the way everything was handled and the way that you were given this on screen, again, I guess this is the theme of the night, how uh, mechanically beautiful—I mean, I don't know, There's this is like a fucking Rolex of precision, Astron 6— Jeremy Gillespie, Steven Kostansky in this situation, they are a Rolex. They are working together on such absolute and pure precision that the way this movie is handled and the way you're even visually unfolded into the chaos. You could watch this movie with no sound on and it's still terrifying. I watched this movie last night just for pleasure before we did this show. I've seen it a handful of times. I had trouble going outside to take the trash out just because of the visuals, because the sun had set and it was dark, and it is just so fucking terrifying. And there's nothing that I can really compare it to that holds that level of almost audacity. I think this movie has balls, and it dangles it over your face the entire time. Well, a lot of people have
2: uh, made reference of Hellraiser and... H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and yeah, those references are there,
1: but I hate using the term Lovecraftian. It's so I think it's at deeper than that. I think, I mean, Lovecraft didn't. The problem is, uh, I guess this is going to be kind of insulting. The problem is, people only have so much in their lexicon. They only have so many things that they can pull for references, and that's what you constantly get as Lovecraftian. This is very much like Clive Barker. Things that involve the unknown and the beyond and concepts of life and death aren't completely niche and crossed off to these people. I think this movie is much more philosophical than anything else. I think this movie holds a, a lot more to guys like Nietzsche. I think it has even like like going into uh, modern philosophy. Somebody like Albert Camus, there is a, a great amount of depth and layers to the idea of Nihilism and you know, bringing up Nietzsche, that's kind of the premiere. God is dead, we killed him. This movie has that level of negativity, but there is something not even quaintly beautiful, something devastatingly beautiful that that moves beyond that because it questions life and death and what's the beyond beyond God, beyond religion. But it does all this without invoking some sort of religious aspect, like Hellraiser has hell, and demons, and demons to some, angels to others. Christian other. mythology. This itself right. has literally the fear of the unknown. Not xenophobia, but the fear of the, like, unknown. Not just space, but what is beyond that. What is beyond life and death, and the great abyssal zone of closing your eyes and never opening again. The the questions that the Void asks, all while still giving you one hell of a fucking horror ride. I, it's just perfect, man.
2: Well, and I think a lot of people when they say Lovecraftian, I understand what they mean. I mean, there's a lot of tentacle creatures and weird shit going on in it. But to me, the Lovecraftian reference more astutely ascribes
1: that unknown part of just, like, it's... I would say, if anything, I mean, instead of Lovecraftian, John Carpenterian. I mean... Well, you... yeah, at times it's got a lot of John
2: Carpenter references in it, too, and it's so much of a Prince of Darkness reference with the people, like, standing outside the hospital, almost like the homeless, where the way hell is, or, like, the hell-type thing is evoked in this film with a triangle on the other side, wherever that other side may be. And I think that's where the Lovecraft thing comes in, is just that unknown quality of unknown religion, unknown gods, unknown anything, but it doesn't evoke something specific like it's Cthulhu or Yogg-Cothag, fuck all that shit. Just they made up their
1: own mythology of religion. I mean, you can look specifically even at the monsters that you're presented to in this movie that I think if you're going to give credit to any source of reference that it's more so John Carpenter than anything because it's not like the first creature we're shown is some sort of hell beast that has escaped from somewhere. It is two humans that have combined and become some sort of awful creature that we're dealing with something from the beyond. And, I mean, really, what this movie is about is discovery. Uh, There's so much self-discovery, I think, that's involved. But getting into a fucking plot, you've got a sheriff that finds somebody on the side of the road that's injured. He takes them to the nearest hospital. You find out that his uh, ex-lover, ex-wife, wife works there, they've lost the child, they've not been talking for quite some time, immediately shit hits the fan. There's no fucking around when it comes to Astron 6, and all of their movies have this in common. Within the first five minutes of the movie, shit hits the fan, and the movie, the whole plot will follow whatever you were just given. They don't meander, they don't drag you in and make you wait for something. Once they give it to you, they never stop, until the ending credits you are continuously given with a barrage of actual effects. That's something we really haven't talked about a lot tonight. I mean, we've made reference of it. There's CGI, there's computer-based effects in Astron 6 films, but for the most part, all of it's practical, and it's fucking glorious to even have a return to something like that to where you can tell and see, yeah, it's a rubber monster. It's a little bit goofy, but I I feel I would rather have that, especially on film over 20 years and being able to watch this movie 20 years later than horribly outdated CGI that in two or three months... It doesn't do anything for you. You know, you can tell it looks bad. You have something that's genius and something timeless about being able to use effects like that. And the movie begins right with that. I mean, you have a fucking bang. You've got a murder and then a human being being set on fire. (coughs) Then the competent character is introduced, which is our lead, played by Aaron Poole. Uh, What's his name? Daniel Carter. He gets to this hospital, and this is where we get the real money. We get the man with the fucking golden throat kenneth welsh playing uh what dr richard powell you may recognize ken welsh as wyndham earl from the last season of twin peaks we're at the hospital everything seems established who we're shown to immediately is all we're going to get for the rest of the movie and it goes from what almost feels like an action movie to something like polanski base you get almost that terrifying creeping aspect of rosemary's baby almost right off the fucking bat
2: and really as i was saying before what really works in this film is you do have that establishing story of a, a union of two people that there's trouble. There's the loss of the child between this couple and they're apart, but they still care for each other immensely. So mm-hmm. you have a grounded story in that and you have a little, little miniature kind of stories with some of the other characters, but in total, that's most of what this film is about. And then the rest of it is about tone it is about music it is about lighting it is about like creating a creepy atmosphere and that is what they're most concerned with as opposed to telling just some elaborate story that has some sort of twist ending or anything. it's like most of that is unimportant it's about death and loss
1: and how to overcome that loss I think immediately at the beginning of the movie you are given that with uh, two very important characters and when you get to the hospital there is a pregnant girl like a, a teenager, a little girl and her grandfather. Kenneth Welsh's character and Aaron Poole of Daniel Carter. You immediately understand that Daniel and his wife Allison have lost a child and Kenneth Welsh's character lets us know this, all the while letting us know that he too has lost his daughter. Those are the most important factors of this movie is that let's quote fucking the road warrior here. We all have lost someone in the war. The world.
0: I understand you, pain. We all are someone below. But we do it my way. Oh, no, it was, it was way. We do it my way. I fear is our ally. The gasoline will be ours. Then you shall have your revenge. It
1: happens. Everyone suffers the exact same way, right? Not at all. Some people just go underground. Some people can't deal with what happens. Some people become alcoholics. They become drug addicts. They can't focus. They just lose themselves from society. And then some people hold so much hate and disdain that they want to conquer it. And you begin getting asked questions that I think are really uncomfortable uh, with with life and death and even dealing with your own perception of it inside of a very graphic monster-based horror movie because you've got these, like, blob monsters of all these people mixed together when you get down to the basement you've got these zombies that just can't die whatsoever one of them's just banging their head into a pipe over and over again cast into eternal suffering never able to break away from it and then you finally get exposed to what the concept of the void is and it's not so much the nether realm but you know If you're a religious person listening to this show, being able to break away from the concepts and ideas of heaven and hell, you have this idea of the nothing, something that, you know, if you've seen Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, you'd be very familiar with, this incredible idea that there is some black earth beyond ours, some place cast constantly in shadows, and that... There is life beyond death. There is energy. There is something more than what we are as human beings. And, you know, just discussing this and getting all weird and philosophical, that's how bizarre this plot twist goes. I mean, you go from just a monster movie to some really, really deep shit. And that's where the uh, fear lies in is the not
2: knowing, even down to you as a viewer, yes, not knowing the plot, but even like when they're going through this kind of, insane asylum filled with these kind of mixed up, fucked up creatures not even knowing what you're looking at and that's where the fear is is just n- like not knowing what the fuck is going on and what you're watching right now and thinking about yourself in the same situation approaching something like this and just going, oh my god, oh my god, what is that? What is that? It's not just, oh my god it's a monster, it's oh my god, I don't understand what I'm seeing and that's really what the truthfully the whole premise of this movie is about is having severe loss and then going through something where you don't even understand where things are going, where you're headed what's even going on around you. That is where the true fear lies in not just being scared of something. It's being scared of almost like being scared of nothing, being scared of the emptiness.
1: I'm speaking earlier about the precision and how well, things are manipulated and forced almost I mean because when you're a director and you're making a production you have to force things to happen so I use that term you know describing how everything happens in the void despite it not having everyone from Astron 6 it still fires on all those cylinders everything is manipulated and shown to you so well and so perfectly while you're questioning things you start to realize I mean you as an audience member you're confused and you don't quite understand what's going on but no one in the movie does either And once they start slowly getting things and there's these plot devices, there's a scene where Daniel Carter and another character has to go look for his ex-wife Allison after she's gone to find supplies, and there's a phone call from a dead character. With that, too, you start getting, you know... Obviously, from the first scene in this movie, you understand that this is some sort of paranormal movie, that there is something otherworldly that's going on here. But as you get these little puzzle pieces that are put into place your confusion starts to swell as well as everyone else in the movie to where you really, it's not like a four-wall experience. You feel like you're with them. You feel like you're a part of this adventure and you're a character in this story. And it, that overwhelmingly works perfect for me. I mean, I think that's something that you can be included in this adventure and feel just as terrified and confused as they are, and it all makes sense in the end. And I think it does adequately. I think the end of this movie, although it is the end of the beyond, it's pretty fucking ideal. And not only that, like getting lost in
2: the environment is another aspect of it because the environment like slowly starts to shift and change without you even realizing it as uh, the characters, like the same thing happens to the characters of where everything starts getting confusing, like um, small room What would be a small room you go into and it's this, you know, expansive, almost universe in that room, that sort of stuff to where everything is no longer making like sense. It's not making logical sense and all logic is thrown out the window. And that's really, again, where the fear comes in is just I don't know how to handle anything that's going on around me right now because it all Does not make sense. Logic
1: is just gone. Well, the last quarter of the movie takes place in literally a part of the hospital that doesn't exist. That as they're venturing, they begin finding places that aren't a part of it. So even our atmosphere, our environment, where we're at in the film, it's beyond concept. You just have to take the hand that's being given to you by the directors and and take what you're being given. It's a rod. Yeah, and thankfully in this uh, uh, you get off the ride safely you can take the whole ride and it's it's beautiful i mean this really is if anything one of those tacky reviews where you can say it was a roller coaster of a movie cuz it really is you start off with such a fucking bang it's like you were just dropped from some 75 foot point and you continuously keep traveling But that's something that, too, even going back to something as uh, juvenile as Manborg, just to use a, a fucking weird term there, but, I mean, it's their first film. You look at The Void, and then you look at Manborg, all the same qualities still persist. You can actually finish the movie, and despite it being incredibly cheap and incredibly goofy... Manborg still has the exact same watchable qualities as the void to the extent that I'm certain I'll be able to watch Manborg two or three times again sometime in the future, and we'll sit down and show people the movie. But I mean, comparing things on that that, that caliber is, is a little bit unfair because the void seriously is is beyond amazing. And I mean, ah oh God, this is gonna be a, a bold statement, but like the void, it's better than midsummer. Way better. like I mean, I would say so, but it's also on a less philosophic
2: kind of See, I don't even agree. That I would say like, a lot of that has to do with exploitation as well, that there's a lot of payoff in The Void.
1: Well, I think there's two different handlings when it comes to death, because both of these movies really focus on death and growth and moving on, but I think The Void, if anything, is, is much deeper with its philosophy. But, I mean, it really is handling something that to some people is everything. Some people take like Friedrich Nietzsche and they just obsess over it and they obsess over like Thus Spake Zarathustra. And they have these ideas and these quotes in their head that are easily fo- you know easily found and like even that book itself is a weird obsession with religion and not being able to get over being alone. Everything in life comes down to almost the same few fucking points. And I think what is magical about the void is it manages to take love, fear and death which are pretty much like the major human emotions. You're either afraid, you're in love, or you're going to die. Nobody ever really thinks or questions life. They don't think about when they're living. They don't think about the journey they're going on. They think about love, death, and that's about it. You have all of those things in, what, like a 90-minute ride that's so terrifying that makes so many questions rise. When I finished Midsummer, it was like, well, good for her. That's nice. That's a. I didn't question my life at all. It was a good-for-her moment. It was like watching Carrie, and that's fine. I like the movie. I think The Void made me question and, and look at my life itself a lot more, and that's just me, you know? And it it's, it's beautifully graphic. There is so much violence in this movie. This is a gore-hound's paradise. But, you know, unlike something like Martyrs, that French film, a lot of questions about death, a lot of questions about the afterlife, everything is left to assumption with something like that. I think The Void is... Fucking on point. It put its weight on it. You know, Rudy Ray Moore would have said this movie. It put its weight on it. We kind of like The Void a little bit. We think it's pretty okay. (laughs) Like Larry David would say, it's pretty good.
0: Pretty good. Pretty, pretty pretty.
1: So now I guess I have to take the floor like I didn't have it for the yeah, last Yeah, I didn't watch this minutes. movie. Yeah. I
2: didn't track it down to watch
1: it. Well, uh, and, and it's completely understandable. This isn't an Astron 6 film. We're going to be talking about 2018's Leprechaun Return, and I promise I'll make it as brief as possible. It's not a bad film. Stephen Kostansky did this. Uh, he directed the film. Suzanne Kelly wrote the screenplay based on characters from Mark Jones. This is a direct sequel 25 years later to the Leprechaun movie the very first Leprechaun movie with Jennifer Aniston. Now, what I can tell you is it's a great movie. It's actually really, really funny. It's done well. Warwick Davis does not return. Uh, It wasn't a matter of budget or problems. He just didn't feel like playing the Leprechaun again. So we've got a new actor doing it, Lyndon Porco. It's a great job. It's the fucking Leprechaun. I don't understand what attention to detail people really care about when it comes to this series. We're excluding everything else that happened. You know, Leprechaun in space, Leprechaun in the hood. 25 years later, he uh, is found again. Mark Holton reprises Ozzy. It's, I don't, there's nothing more I can say. It's a sequel to the Leprechaun movie. If you hold that. <laughs> well, the way, what I'm like getting from all this is, and what I've heard from
2: other people is, Yeah, it's pretty okay, and it's better than it has really any right to be. I, I was pleasantly surprised that I enjoyed it, even though it's another
1: fucking Leprechaun film. And that's most of the reviews I've seen on it. It's definitely better than any other Leprechaun sequel, but it's arguably better than the actual first Leprechaun movie. It actually has entertainment value, but what you have to take into consideration, though, is it's a Leprechaun movie. If you have any sort of high esteem for that series in general, That's weird. But I mean, some people do like you've got the, you know, a lot of people love Charles band. A lot of people love full moon. I get it. There's an audience for this. It's a well put together movie. That's not overly annoying
2: and uh, <clears throat> has a plot you can follow and some of the jokes work some of the uh special effects things work again i am just guessing on all of this but that's what i'm getting from what you're
1: saying you're taking it you know words right out of my mouth it does everything works the gags work uh, some of the characters die because they want to stop and take selfies with the leprechaun you've got you know a whole running joke of you can't call him a midget that's racist and they have to call him a little person and it's all these things that overwhelmingly could be offensive, but the way it's handled by the people in Astron 6 in this situation, Stephen Kostansky, it's fluent, it's well. It was produced and released by the Sci Fi Channel? So, I mean, that might say something to you, it might actually speak volumes, I hope it does, it's a fucking movie, I watched it, and it's one of those things, like, it took 90 minutes of my time, there you go, Steve. You weren't bored. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, Stephen Kostansky this week has, has taken a great deal of my time, so has Astron 6 in general, and, you know, I don't regret it, I don't regret watching this movie, there's a lot worse shit that we've watched on this show that I'm just fucking mad over, like, everything we did for Halloween.
2: <laughs> okay, that's my fault. Well, that'll bring us to, uh, the last one we'll be discussing a little bit about tonight, which is Stephen Kazansky's newest film, uh, Psycho Goreman, that has been making a huge splash the last couple months. It's not disappointing at all. Uh, The story, what the fuck? How do you explain this story? It's about an intergalactic evil being that a little girl controls with a magic crystal. Well,
1: no, you can do it even better than that. I mean, two kids are playing a game, and they dig up some treasure, and the treasure actually holds uh, the power to an intergalactic being that is on a quest to destroy all the light and love in the universe, and what we're presented with is a story of this being learning the power of love. Aww. I mean, that's really Psycho Gorman. I mean, that's even how the movie fucking it's still ends. still
2: destroying the rest of the Earth at the
1: end. <laughs> the most unique thing, I think, about this movie is the fact that it is really a children's film i mean this has almost the appeal the style and the vibe of it's like power rangers almost yeah i mean it's like a 95 96 children's movie and it's got that kind of going into your pre-teens vibe and that happy hopeful feeling to it and the kids are hysterical uh, to me what carries the movie is oh, the... It's the little girl the little girl carries the entire goddamn thing you know what honey you guys can't play wacky ball like a crazy ball and the whole kid, the whole movie is just fucking bananas and just this over-the-top, kind of really reminds me of Andy Kaufman. Her name was um, Nita Jossie Hanna. She plays Mimi. It's just a beyond. Everything in this movie is very, very weird. Everything is like an alternative reality where you can just get away with kind of being a dick. Everyone, the children are snarky. Everyone just kind of has this. A chip-on-their-shoulder attitude, the aliens, everybody, and it works so well. I mean, it's... I, I said earlier, like, Manbury is like this weird hodgepodge of, like, an anime th- sort of thing with video games, and we've got the editor that is just this absolute mix of all these Italian films, and with Psycho Gorman, it's not just kind of 90s culture, but you've got a lot of children's show aspects with just... So much brutal and brittle humor. It's so much weird references. Uh, like, Adam Brooks plays the father who...
2: Best character in the movie.
1: Yeah, it's not even a subtle performance. I think this guy, like, did a Marlon Brando job on this motherfucker. Like, this this is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. I've not seen someone give so little of a shit before. <laughs> <laughs> But that's all figuring it into the character. The character himself does not
2: give a shit. This disaffected father character who just doesn't want to do a goddamn thing. His wife is always on his ass. But I, no, baby, no. I'm just,
1: I, let me watch TV. By the way, I bought a new TV. You might have to, you know, take some extra shifts at the pharmacy. It it might help things out. So, I mean, something as kind of laughable as this child story plot of these kids, they get control of this alien what we find out is this guy has been cursed to live in an unfindable place which is planet earth because apparently we are the most insignificant and unadvanced people in the entire galaxy probably true that's that's probably true he's hidden here these children find it it awakens a be it awakens a beacon to let these other people the templars know that he's awake on Earth and they have to come fight him and it turns into this weird interstellar Dungeons and Dragons sort of thing. All the meanwhile being an incredibly crew-driven children's movie. It's really fucking weird. And very Sid
2: and Marty Croft. There's a uh, in the middle of the film musical number played by the the little girl who has apparently started a band out of nowhere. Psycho Gorman's playing the drums. And the song is Frick Off. Which... Could not be more viciously Canadian phrase than I have ever heard in my life. Eh, frick. But that's the that's the style of humor, and it's very Scooby-Doo at times, very Power Rangers. It's very everything, and it all really works really well at times. If you saw the trailer, you're not interested in the film from the trailer, don't watch the film, because it is that trailer. It, it, like That is the style of humor. That it, that's the jokes you're going to be able to see. You're not going to be getting much more plot than this. And what's weird is me and Hank both had the exact same response to the film. I sat there and watched it, and I laughed a, you know, a good handful of times. And when it was over, I'm like, that's it? That shit was like 45 minutes long at most. It's over an hour and a half.
1: <laughs> it is one hour and 34 minutes. Uh, to touch upon something that we had been discussing at the beginning of the show, especially when it comes to the shorts of Astron 6, A lot of things you see in the shorts and some of the other, you know, uh, ideas and plot devices used in previous films really show up heavily in Psycho Goreman. We were talking about that whole kind of Terminator 2 scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger is learning the cool and hip lingo.
0: No, 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 no. You gotta listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative or some shit like that. You say no problemo. And if someone comes off to you with an attitude, you say, eat me. And if you want to shine them on, it's hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, or later, dickwad. And if someone gets upset, you say, chill out. Or you could do combinations. Chill out, dickwad. That's great. See, you're getting it. No problemo.
1: You've got a complete replication of that scene in this movie. So, like, all those jokes from Manborg where they just fall flat, they're again done in this movie that you've got Psycho Gorman trying to learn the language, and like, there's one sequence. This one I really uh, appreciated that Mimi's giving him orders and says, You dig? And Psycho Gorman turns and looks at her and goes, Dig? What? So you almost have this idea, like, oh, he got the joke, he got the joke uh, <laughs> And nothing plays off. You've still got that kind of very flat- And I, I don't mean to say this in a certain weird way, but, like, it's Canadian humor. It it really is like kids in the hall. It's like throwing a pancake at the wall, no one laughing but yourself sort of thing. You kind of have to get why it's- uh, That fucking made no sense. <laughs> but you kind of have to get why it, it, it's funny for it to be funny, and- if you don't get the culture, I guess, I think that's a big problem. Like, this movie was hysterical to me because I remember watching shows just like this that had villains just like Psycho Goreman. But in this film, he's blowing up people's head. There's vicious death. There's blood. There's gore. I mean, this is kind of X-rated. It's a, it's a very, very graphic movie. But at the same time, it's like, man, God, I watched... It's also a kid's film. And in the that 1980s kid's film sort
2: of the way where they're like the dad helps the daughter live her dream of
1: controlling a intergalactic demon-style creature. You feel really akin to it because, I mean, I definitely watched shows and movies just like this after school as a kid, and the real big difference is guts were not... Re- I mean, they were, you just didn't see it. This movie doesn't hold the punches. And we, we've been discussing this with Astron 6 in total. They never stop short. Like, when there's a gag that could just stop... It just goes and goes and goes. And that's what makes it funny. It's almost the over-excessive amount of humor that's applied to things. But again, it's, it's the way the humor is delivered. And it's so deadpan. It's so different. You don't know when to laugh. And I think that's what makes it beautiful. Because you know it's okay to laugh. That's something that's very important that you're introduced to with all of their films. It's okay to laugh. You just never know when. And that's really... It's as good as a jump scare. You laugh and you don't expect it. It's as good as being frightened.
2: Even down to weird stuff, like they do the, the musical montage of, you know, Psycho gourmet trying on clothes like it's an 80s film. And he settles on this weird Dr. Grant from Jurassic Park outfit. Why? I have no idea. It's just a weird little joke they threw in. He's got the red bandana, the blue,
1: like, uh, denim shirt. He's got the hat and the sunglasses. It's Sam Neill from Jurassic Park. You know, you brought up Power Rangers. The last half of the movie, you get introduced to all these other aliens and on these people from all these other worlds. The mother character gets turned into some weird styrofoam angel that helps fight things. It's balls-through-the-wall goofy. Like, there's, there's, there's no defending how goofy and how cheap and how tacky it looks, but all of that plays off so well for what it is. How tacky it looks... Is kind of the fucking point. And we were talking about this with the pacing and how the editor works and how it drags in some places. I think it's intentional. I think these things are, are thought about and written and put into the movie because it's what's going to drive it. And we have some like hardcore perfectionists on our hands and it's, it's beautiful. Like their perfection works. I guess the best way to explain it is it's like ET on a, like on 11
2: it's turned all the way up of taking that concept and pushing it to its furthest possible idea of where you could go with it, and as cruel and absurd and as brutal as you can make it. And that's really where the uh, the heart lies in the film. Of if you're into horror films, if you were into like eighty, like not as much eighties, but like even early nineties culture of like even kaiju stuff at certain points. This is what you're into. I like one of the drawbacks. I would say though. Is I would have had some of the um, other alien style creatures in it a little bit more. I thought that, like like there were some really interesting and cool designs, and it's just like. Some
1: of them are just hey, here's one scene. I'm like, oh come on! I want to see like I want to see more of that dude. I want to see like another fight scene or something. But well, you know what it really reminded me of? You get that really cool scene, and and what you're bringing up is when all the aliens are at the round table. That gave off like hardcore dark crystal vibes. It really gave me that that beautiful idea of, of a Jim Henson universe. And you, like I mentioned, you've got some cheap styrofoam effects, but all of them are really cool. Like you've got the guy in the weird brain suit and a frogman and a weird angel lady. The movie itself has so much imagination. Astron 6, from Manborg to Psycho Gorman, the imagination that all of these people have. You can give most of the credit, I guess, to Steven Kostansky. I mean, that's where I guess a lot of the praise comes to as a director and a creative force, but every single person involved, I I, I wouldn't know how to equally give out the credit because everyone that we have seen, especially in things like Father's Day and the editor. It's everyone working together that makes this so wonderful. It's it's the, the amount of passion all of these people... And that... doing
2: different completely different styles of movies almost each time. I mean, yes, they're all humor. They all could be considered parody. But, like, parodying these different styles and doing them wonderfully and understanding how those films are shot, but how that's those passion. films are structured, and making a comedic version of those as well as a love letter to all those. And the creativity doesn't stop. It's just... Like, all the characters created for this are just so amazing, and you just want them to have their own, like, comic book, their own universe. I want to know more about this stuff. But you've got it in a 90-minute, like, you know, kids film, so you're only going to get so much of it. And that's, like, that's what's so strange about everything. It's just, it's so overloaded with
1: creativity, as is all of their films. Something that really is to, to note at the end of this program is the passion that's put into this. There's so much that you can find. You can just sit down on Amazon and and find thousands and thousands and thousands of 2020 movies that all suck. People that you were discussing, people want to make movies to use it as a stepping stone. And I guess it's forgotten that, you know, cinema is the same thing as painting. It's the same thing as writing a novel and poetry. There is art involved in this, and I think, if anything, Astron 6 is a collective of fucking pure artists, and all of them combined... I, I love it when all of them are together. If I had a complaint about the void, it's that more guys from Astron 6 weren't in it. Psycho Gorman, where was Twink? Come on, he's in, like, one scene. You gotta give more Twink to the world.
2: <laughs> well, and, like, you use the um, stepping stone metaphor, and what's kind of apt about that is they don't consider any of this a stepping stone. It's like, there's one stone. It's like, me not doing anything, to me making awesome movies. It's not, well, I want to make a Marvel movie next. I want to do this. I I need to further my career. It's just like, nope, I'm where I want to be. I made Psycho Goreman.
1: What happened to just wanting to make movies? What happened to just being content with being your own device and not being the next John Carpenter? What's wrong with being Astron 6? What's wrong with being Steven Kostansky? And honestly, if you ask me, I wish more people were Astron 6. I would love to live in a fucking Astron 6 world because I have... Everything I need there, everything that I could ask for a movie. I can sit down and watch Paris, Texas, but what sort of reality is that to live in? If I could pick a fucking reality, it's definitely The Editor. I mean, come on. What what sort of world is a horror enthusiast that has dedicated fucking 12 years of their life to a goddamn horror podcast? What else would be perfect? The Editor, come on. In general, though... What I enjoy so much about Astron 6
2: is, and this sounds cheesy as fuck, but they feel like they're your friends. You don't know them. It's not a parasocial relationship, but that's what it feels like. It feels like these are your buddies who are like taken off and making something that is geared specifically for you and just doing it really well. And you just find them to be entertaining and like, hey, you want to be friends with me? can we be friends and hang out? That's the way I kind of feel about it, because we just all have a very similar sense of humor, a similar, um, interest in films, filmmaking, and just doing it well and not cheaping out and trying to be as creative as possible. And it's just, that's how I feel about it. It's just like, wow, these guys are doing something interesting and they're not quote unquote selling out to do it. They're just
1: making what they want to make. I think on top of that, it's not just the fact that it seems like people you'd want to hang out with. But for me, when I sit down and watch something like The Editor, when I finished Father's Day, it felt like something a friend had shown me. I mean, it felt like, as you just said, you kind of know the guys. It felt like after I watched it, like, oh, man, my buddies made this movie and they showed it to me, that there really is something joyous that it's like, you know, hands across America, that everyone kind of is united here. Every aspect of horror, every aspect of not just horror, exploitation, uh, film itself. You can't just be a hardcore horror fan. When you get so deep into things, you're just a fucking film fan. And no matter how dumb that might sound to people, there, there's a passion behind that. And you can look at this collective and really see these guys love film. They, 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 they're doing everything possible to show their love of film. And I think it's fantastic. If anything, uh, Fucking, I implore you, watch Astron 6 movies.
2: Yeah, and really take the time out to enjoy them. Don't just watch Psycho Gorman and be done with it. Like, the editor is on Shudder right now. Manborg
1: is on Amazon Prime. Uh, Father's Day, not sure. Amazon that's Prime. Right now. It's on Amazon. Absolutely everything right now. I mean, we got to... Give the date. This episode will be coming out March 2021. As of March 2021, every feature film from Astron Six is available uh either on Amazon Prime or on Shudder. And well Psycho Gorman is a rental. It's not a free Amazon Prime. But yeah, you can rent it off Amazon $2. Prime. Two ninety nine. And hey, at this point, you know, pay the two ninety
2: nine. Or just buy their hunky boy edition of Psycho Gorman, The Blu-ray. And uh support Support local creators, man.
1: Hey, I finally got my match to light. So I guess now that I got my cigarette finally lit, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope that we've taught you guys to appreciate something outside of your comfort zone. When I got into this, I didn't know I was going to be exposed to as much as I was exposed to. I didn't know that there was going to be cock-eating father-fucking rapists. I didn't know that there was going to be otherworldly demons that just completely wanted to destroy sunshine and happiness, or something as deep as the void. Love, death, and everything in between and what lays on the other side of life. But here we are. We've taken this ride together, and that's Astron 6. It's one hell of a ride. You have a week until our next episode to watch absolutely everything or we will find you and we will be inside your home. How'd you get inside my house? You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. Who are you? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. You'll be hearing from us soon. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: on the next episode. Hank is an alien from the planet Melmac who follows an amateur radio signal to Earth and crash lands in the garage of the Nashes, a suburban middle-class family who lives in any town USA. The family consists of I, Alexander Nash, his wife, their infant daughter, Buford, and their pet cat, Boogers Benelli, whom Hank
1: wishes to consume. Hey, if eating pussy is wrong, then I don't want to be right!
0: (laughs) Unsure what to do, the Nashes take Hank into their home and hide him from the alien task force. A part of the US military that specializes in killing aliens. Find out what happens on the next Feline Eatin' Good episode of Death by DVD. is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. DVD has concluded another day of broadcasting. That by dvd is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building transmitting with 1 billion watts of audio power as authorized by the Federal Commission of Broadcasting in offices at 123 Easy Street.